Welcome to this Jeremy Bamba and White House Farm podcast season four. My name's Emma Morris and I'm joined today by my colleagues Yvonne Hartley and Philip Walker. Hi Yvonne. Hi, Philip. Hi, Hi Emma. So we're here today to talk about the recent complaint against Essex Police that was upheld by the IOPC. But I think we'll start, Philip, if you could just explain who the IOPC is for us. Yeah, the IOPC, uh, that stands for the Independent Office for Police Conduct. Uh, and they are a public uh, body in England and Wales, which since January 2018 is responsible for overseeing the system for handling complaints against police forces in England and Wales. Most allegations of police conduct are investigated by police forces' own professional standards departments, but the IOPC that is there to deal with particularly serious allegations, for instance, in cases where somebody dies or sustains uh, serious injuries following police contact. And there are a number of thresholds for mandatory referrals to the IOPC that police forces have to assess when a complaint is made to them. Right. And that's something that will come into play with Jeremy's complaint, as we'll explain a bit later. Okay, that's interesting. So, Yvonne, what prompted the complaint to the IOPC? So what are the details of it in Jeremy's case? Yeah, well, firstly, I need to point out that the complaint was against two of Essex police officers mm. who were uh, key in Jeremy's case. So one was the leading senior investigating officer, DCI Michael Ainsley. The second was DI Ronald Cook, who was scenes of crime officer. So what happened was, initially, during the judicial review of Jeremy's case against the Crown Prosecution Service for disclosure, it came to light that Ainsley and Cook had provided documentation to an author Caroline Lee, and that the documentation was specific files that were generated during the investigation. Now, it, from information that we received, these were files that we were actually asking the CPS for and had been refused disclosure. Oh, wow. The CPS took it upon themselves to investigate this because it was a little bit like this is out of the norm. Mm. And they got DCR Jennings of Essex Police to investigate had Cook and Ainsley provided documentation to the author. So in 2020, um, DCR Jennings did his initial investigation, came back and said, no, they did nothing wrong. They didn't do anything out of, out of the ordinary. The JR proceeded, and obviously it wasn't about that. It was about the CPS not disclosing, so the matter wasn't taken any further at that stage. Yeah. So once the judicial review was ended, we took the decision with Jeremy that and Jeremy's legal team that this isn't right. They've got away with providing documentation to members of the public that we are asking for that we haven't seen. So we consulted with the legal team and they said, yes, we need to pursue this. But in addition, over the course of many years of looking through Jeremy's case files and everything, it came to light about acts that were committed by Ainsley and Cook as the senior investigating officer and the senior senior crime officer that 
impeded on the investigation. So there were a lot of different factors which weren't necessarily truthful and weren't necessarily normal in the process of investigating a case. So we have a lot of examples of this. So would you like me to give you a few examples, Emma? Yes, of... yes please. So, for instance, in the case of Ainsley, so we've, we've got the documentation he's providing to members of the public, but also additional complaints. Just to summarise, can't be specific on all of them, but um, his conduct in the case was, for instance, he lied about the foster care issue to the DPP. He said it wouldn't have ever been an option, but yet had statements of foster carers who had looked after Nicholas and Daniel. So this this is where Jeremy had said that when he left on the 6th of August that Sheila, June and Neville were discussing the possibility of the children going into foster care. And Ainsley reported that absolutely not. That would never have been discussed. Foster care would never have been considered. This information has only come from Jeremy, isn't it? That's... Yeah, exactly. But he kept it from the DPP that he had statements from foster carers who had taken care of the children. There were other incidents about Ainsley telling the DPP that uh, there's a photograph of a, a telephone in the, on the shelf in the office. And then later on, it transpired that very same telephone he was telling the DPP and the jury, Jeremy had hid it in a pile of magazines in the kitchen. There was changed witness statements that Ainsley was aware of. There were witness statements that were written after Ainsley had set out to the DPP what they contained. How did he know what they contained? Because he told them what to put in them. And they were one of the major factors was a report by DCI Keneally in which he, he did an investigation which concluded on the 6th of September 1985, in which he reviewed all the available evidence and concluded that Sheila was responsible. But yet this information was edited in late statements from Ainsley. To, there had no report ever been disclosed. It was one of the documents we are seeking, and yet Ainsley tried to disguise that that ever existed. And also another key factor was Neville's ability to ring Jeremy at um, 3.15 approximately in the morning before the call to the police. Ainsley said that couldn't have happened because Neville had been shot in the mouth. Well, nobody knows the order of the series of events. But yeah, Ainsley was adamant that because Neville had been shot in the mouth, he wouldn't have been able to speak and therefore Jeremy was lying about the telephone call and therefore... There was no call to Essex Police, which we now know that Neville did phone Essex Police. And clearly yes. before he was shot? Clearly before he was shot. Nobody knows the timeline, so, you, you know, they can't. But Ainsley was absolutely adamant that Neville could not have used the telephone. So there are other issues as well, but they are some of the key factors. Then moving on to Cook, who actually assured DCR Jennings of Essex Police that no way did he ever take anything home. Well, in an interview that he did, uh, that was done by Chris Mersker, who you may remember was responsible for the RTV drama, he did an interview for HBO Max on uh, October 2020, and very nicely, he was describing how 
he was depicting her like the typical English policeman and and he said he never expected for a minute but what Cook did was turn up in a pub in the middle of Essex, get documents and photographs out showing them all over the pub to the um, Prismerska. And wow. it's like, well, wait a minute, you told Jennings that you never took anything home, but there you are with photographs. And this is an independent person who said this, so obviously that was included in our complaint. Yeah. But also acts during the investigation um, that Cook was complacent for is he lied about paint samples that were taken from the under the mantel shelf at White House Farm. He lied about the dates they were taken and how many were taken. He lied about the downstairs shower room window catch. And we know that he took it off, put it on, took it off, put it on three times at least. It's documented before all of a sudden these scratch marks on that window catch, these scratch marks on that frame, window frame, that they then attribute in October 1985 to have been caused by Jeremy slipping the catch to get in that window. There was no damage on that window before, and Cook knew no. that he had repeatedly taken that catch on and off for no reason, and it's no explain why. It was just done. But also Cook was seizing exhibits that had already been seized. So oddly, we don't know the reason for that. Uh, and he also, his fingerprint evidence that he was given, so for instance, he said Jeremy's fingerprint matched a fingerprint on the rifle. Well, maybe so. But he said Jeremy's fingerprint was matched on the 8th of September, 1985. Jeremy's fingerprints weren't even taken till the 24th of October, 1985. So how we could match the in September, we don't know. So these are just a few of the key factors that were included in the police complaint. We thought we're not just going to go about the fact that we're disclosing documentation. We'll put in a few other things that we know for certain they were doing and that yeah. we can prove they were doing through detailed document analysis. So that's the basis of the complaint that was sent first to Essex Police. Yeah, so they are ser really serious allegations. Philip, would you say that they meet the threshold of a complaint that would be referred to the IOPC? Yes, they do. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the first things the IOPC said in their decision, that this should have immediately been referred to them because of the serious nature of the allegations. But in the event, Essex Police just took it in-house uh, sent DCI Jennings round to have a cup of tea and a chat with uh, with Cook and Ainsley, said, did you do anything wrong? And they said, of course not. And he said, oh, well, that's fine then. So that was how they tried to bury it initially. So obviously, having had that response from Essex Police, we had no alternative but to turn to the IOPC for a proper investigation uh, and the decision in our favour, which eventually emerged. Right. But it was it was a long drawn out process, Emma. I mean, the first the, there is a procedure that you have to follow. You can't just go straight to the IOPC. Essex Police should have, with this as Philip said, with the serious nature of the complaints, they should have referred it to them to investigate, but they didn't. Instead, it was over two years of Essex Police in, investigating themselves. 
well, obviously, mm. they're going to come back with a we did nothing wrong. Yeah. And so letter after letter after letter was sent to Essex Police about these complaints. And they'd come back with no further action required. And this has been dealt with in a court of law. Well, it hadn't been dealt with in a court mm. of law. It had been mentioned at the JR, the initial disclosure issues, but nothing about the actions of these two particular officers. But it was as though they'd scrubbed that from everything. So from there, when we're not happy with Essex Police, then we have to go to the Police Standards Department, which is still Essex Police. Right. CD you have to go through. So um, in 2021, so this is like a year later, we were finally in the position we could go to the police standards. Um, we said, you know, you need to, this is not a cursory, no further action on everything. We need these complaints investigated properly. Anyway, they came back and just, they said no further action in just very brief paragraphs. Well, what did so, they, did they give any reasons why it was no further action? I mean... They just ignored the allegations? They ignored or... the allegations. They just said there was no further action. That nobody had done anything wrong and there was no further action. And, well, their decision was not proportionate to the complaints that we had made. It was like, well, they haven't even explained why is there no further action on this? Explain the fingerprint mm. issue to us. Why, why are these anomalies? If there's no further action, have you actually looked at this? Yeah. No, they haven't. So then um, we also had to involve the um, Police and Fire Commissioner of Essex because Essex Police just seemed to ignore us. Um, they have a, a mandatory time where they're supposed to reply within 130 days and there was nothing forthcoming. Uh, the Fire and Chief Commissioner, he then said, they've got 28 days to get back to you about it. He said there was like further follow-ups needed to be done. It was only 12 months after he said that they had 28 days did they eventually get back to us, Essex Police, with a, a more detailed summary of what they were supposed to have done on each of the issues, except on each and every instance it was a copied and pasted answer that said, this has been dealt with in court. No further action, this has been dealt with in court. Well, nothing was dealt with in court. None of these complaints had ever been before a court. No respect but, for the due process at all of the procedure, is there? I mean, they're given 28 days and they just completely ignore that and take a year to come back. Yeah, with, exactly. But it's not just the extended timescale, as the IOPC pointed out. You know, this is not just a technical matter, the way that Essex Police dealt with the complaints initially. It, it was actually illegal what they did, because there is a statutory requirement for an automatic referral with this level of seriousness in the of these complaints. So once again, Essex police were acting outside the law in the same way they have done in ignoring the two court orders, demanding that they disclose all the case material. I must just add, Emma, that for anybody listening who doesn't know the amount of the extent of how we make our submissions with the legal team and everything. We point out what the issue is. Everything is meticulously referenced to documents. There is no speculation. We're not guessing. It's all there in black and white. 
It's just been a case of piecing it together because nothing made sense. Even the fingerprint issue didn't make sense. Mm. So you piece it together from the documentation, highly reference it, and all that documentation is sent. So it's not like you know, we're pulling a thread and hoping it will go somewhere. Yeah. It absolutely. It's got a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, all documented throughout. And yet Essex Police were like, but they've done nothing wrong. It's really. And then at the same time, we did send the full extent of the police complaint because they are large. We did against just those two officers and we did send those in addition to the CCRC. So they're fully aware they've got that police complaint as well. Plus all the letters um, that Essex Police sent us to try and cover their tracks and there's no further action letters and the IOPC decision. So that is with the CCRC. This will enable the CCRC to be able to realise that not everything Essex Police are telling you is true. Essex Police tell lies. Essex Police try and cover their own backs. So that hopefully with the chain of evidence that we sent them with the uh, police, with the Essex Police, the, the Chief Constable, the Police Standards Department and the IRPC chain of evidence regarding just these two police officers and the inaction of Essex Police in trying to resolve this, it will enable the CCRC to think, wait a minute, yeah, we can't believe what Essex Police tell us because this is... the underhand way that they actually dealt with the complaint. Exactly. And the only thing Philip said, it was illegal, they should have referred it, and they didn't. Mm. But as you can imagine, we were obviously all amazed to hear Chris Merska's story about Cook showing him scenes of crime photos in the middle of a busy pub in Essex. But yeah. that that had quite serious consequences as well as being shocking in its own right, in that he wrote the screenplay for the ITV drama uh, White House Farm. So that material was some of the basis on which he built the story that was shown on national TV. So this wasn't just an ethereal, you know, mm. conversation between two people. That this had a major effect on public perceptions of the case. And I'm sure he showed good? him what he wanted him to see as well, rather than you yes, know, it, transparent it, open book. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and the same thing has happened with Caroline Lee, who, as you all will know, wrote what she claimed to be the definitive uh, story of the White House farm murders in her book published in 2015. Uh, and we had the extraordinary situation where she posted on social media a picture of some of the files that she'd been given um, through Cook and Ainsley, uh, which we had never seen. And she was, as far as the case is concerned, although she's obviously interested in it, she is just a member of the public. Uh, and so, so just, just to clarify then, so a member of the public was handed over files, police files on the case that the defence had been denied access to. Yes, yes that's right. And we recognised, Yvonne recognised through the, the some of the reference numbers on the front of those files, that these this was material that we had never seen. And she must have known she'd done, you know, that there was something dodgy about it because she took that post down very quickly, didn't she? Not quick enough for you, Yvonne, though, who screenshotted it <laughs> very quickly before she took it down. But she posted it, then obviously must have thought better of it very quickly because it was gone. Yeah, but it's like the 
the Chris Mercer interview with HBO Max, he would have not anticipated that he was lied to. Oh, he was then became a part of this chain of deceit by Essex Police because Cook was adamant that he lied when he was interviewed by DCR Jennings. He said, I didn't take any documentation or any exhibits home. Well, he obviously did because he turned up in the pub and we've got an independent person not talking to us or our legal team, talking to promote his drama is no reason to lie. No. And that's not the first occasion we know of, of Cook showing, you know, scenes of crime material to other people unconnected with either the police or, or the case, because somebody approached us many years ago saying they've been shown a video by him, which comprised a lot of the scenes of crime photos, uh, you know, just as almost an evening's entertainment, which when you think about it, it is incredibly shocking that, you know, pictures yeah. of a crime scene where the whole of Jeremy's family had, had died were just being shown as, you know, almost like, like the weekly video in the Cook household. It was extraordinary. Awful, isn't it? Well, not, I mean, you say many years ago, Philip, but we were made aware really recently this year that he was also showing other ex-Essex police officers who were unconnected to the case, material, crime scene photos and material from the case to other people. So who knows how many people he was showing it around to. Yeah. Well, and also the other thing we know is that um, Ainsley commissioned his own independent report to try and bolster some of his claims or, on some of the evidence in the case. Uh, and I know Yvonne uh, ha knows more of those details than me. Yeah. Um, what it is, uh, people may remember a number of years ago, it was in the media about the blood on Sheila's foot. Yeah. And instantly it was in the media, Ainsley commissioned an ex-police officer called Ling, who worked, who was actually involved in the investigation on the peripheral in 1985. He himself had to compile a report on behalf of Ainsley, in which he said that the photographs we were using were fake. Now, these photographs had been given to us by the CCRC, so <laughs> they're not fake because they no. got them from Essex Police. So he commissioned this link to do the report and immediately sent it to the CCRC. I believe that he thought we were going to put a submission in regarding the blood on Sheila's foot, but we didn't at that time. So, but we have made the CCRC aware that Ainsley was trying to impact on Jeremy's submission, even though we hadn't made one at the time, he was trying to still have an influence over the case. What, why would he commission an independent forensic well, report? Why would he? With that, is that because we know the photos came from the CCRC, so they weren't fake. Exactly. So, he, so he's, that's fraud, isn't it? I mean, what is that perverting the course of justice? Exactly. But well, because well. The, the, the person that's said these photos are fake is either not very good at his job or is lying. But within that report, Ainsley was also saying that the photographs that they had were different. What photographs? Show us then. Just show us the photographs. Mm. 
So it all got sent to this to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. So it's for them to to delve and to dig and to try and get everything. But it's you know it's sort of mission impossible now because both Ainsley and Cook are now deceased. Mm. So Yvonne, can you tell me then exactly what did the IOPC decide and rule? Yeah, well, I'll just briefly say that on the night, it was the 9th of May 2023 that we received notification from them about the decision. Now, they made it very clear that their role was to decide whether our complaint against Essex Police handling of our complaints against police officers was handled correctly and that the outcome was reasonable and proportionate. Part of their ruling was to determine if the complainant handler engaged with us to fully understand and address the complaint, that they conducted adequate inquiries and considered relevant information, that the conclusion was logical, appropriate and evidence-based, reasonable actions were taken to address the complaint and any potential for learning was identified as part of the process. So the IOPC went on to list the 29 complaints that we'd made against police officers to Essex Police. And they ruled that uh, our complaint against Essex Police was upheld on the basis that they didn't do the necessary. So they should have referred, the Essex Police should have referred our complaints against the police officers immediately to the IOPC for them to make a decision, but didn't. So they they basically said that um, there was nothing that they could do as regards the complaints, but there was something they could do regarding Essex Police not conducting their review properly um, because their remit is only narrow and deals with the way the complaint was handled. Does that that ultimately mean then that the Essex police just brushed the complaint under the carpet or attempted to just brush the complaint under the carpet? Yeah, they did. I mean, I don't know if you'll remember, but right at the beginning, Essex police told the legal team that they were abusing process in making a complaint to them in the first place, which was obviously used as a deterrent action of us going ahead with these complaints. But we knew that that wasn't correct, and so we pursued it. But the IOPC ruled that the complaint, as I say, should have been passed immediately to them from the outset, and therefore Essex Police have to learn this in the future, which doesn't necessarily help us, but at least they've had their hands slapped. And um, so, so they didn't actually investigate the points of the complaint. They just said that, that Essex Police themselves didn't do what they should have done. That's right. They did actually look at all the evidence and the complaints that we made because that was part of the package that we sent them. But they said that they couldn't make a decision against deceased officers who they obviously they couldn't investigate it to the full extent and that they recommended another process, which was the CCRC, which is already underway. And that's what it said in their letter. So this um, police complaint has been sent from the outset to the CCRC with all the communication backwards and forwards and the rolling, ruling of the IOPC. Right. Okay. So I guess what that really means in reality then is there's no point in them doing anything further when the officers subject to the complaint are deceased and can't face any kind of disciplinary action. 
Well, the IOPC's job was to investigate Essex Police's conduct. I think if this issue would have been referred to the IOPC in the first instance by Essex Police, they would have investigated the issues. But as it stood, the complaint we made was against Essex Police's conduct in reviewing the complaints that we've made. So we did win that, and this IOPC are fully aware that the complaint is with the Criminal Case Review Commission. So hopefully all correspondence has been sent to them and the decision, and I hope that's going to make them realise that Essex Police just cannot be trusted. They bend the rules, they break the rules to protect their own, and it's about time that that stopped. And it's not, you know, it's not like it was a trivial complaint. Um, it was a complaint of a very serious nature that they they just... Very serious because it impacted on Jeremy's conviction. A lot of the complaints made against these two particular officers were things that bend the truth, it manipulated evidence, it fabricated evidence. All the evidence was there for Essex Police and the IOPC to see. So yeah. we included everything, all the major uh, key aspects of these two police officers' conduct. And and it was downright corrupt and impacted on the conviction. Had they not been guilty of the actions that they committed, it's highly likely Jeremy wouldn't have even got to trial. And and also, as as Yvonne's pointed out, in, in practical terms, the IOPC couldn't do anything against Cook and Ainsley as the, they are now deceased. But what they did say was there is an opportunity for what they called organisational learning for Essex Police in how they deal with these situations in the future. Um, basically, that means a slap on the wrist and being told, don't do it again. But beyond that, they did confirm, as we said earlier, that Essex Police had acted illegally in this situation. They had a statutory obligation to refer a complaint of this seriousness directly to the IOPC in the first instance, and they didn't do that. And that just adds to the pattern of illegal behaviour from Essex Police, as we saw in the case of the two court orders they've ignored for disclosure up to the present day. So it, it just adds fuel to what we're saying, that uh, Essex police have acted improperly all the way down the line, uh, and now they've been called out on that by an official government body. Yeah, so it's not just, we're not just talking about historic corruption from the 1980s, it's, it's a continuation of that corruption. Yes, exactly. That, pat that pattern is continuing even now, all this time, nearly four decades after the case. So how did Essex Police respond to the complaint? What did they say? They well, haven't responded to our legal team at all. They've just ignored it? Yeah, they've just brushed it off as, you know, yet another thing that, you know, another brickbat that's coming towards them from this case. And they seem to be totally immune to any criticism or any other observations that don't uh, feed into their particular narrative. When the Police and Fire Commissioner had uh, hold of the case before it went to the IOPC, he actually instructed Essex Police to apologise to Jeremy and the legal team for their lack of investigation into these issues. And, of okay. course, no apology was forthcoming. Just amazing, isn't it? They just ignore everyone. They're completely above the law. Absolutely.
well, let's hope it all comes crashing down around their ears and they'll be explaining themselves, that, uh, you know, as and when Jeremy is exonerated, because I'm sure there's going to be lots of eyes on them at that stage. Definitely. They'll have to justify their behaviour, won't they? They will. So they in will. terms of the ruling itself, is that public? Can people see that? Well, usually they publish their rulings anonymously, i.e. by covering up who the complainant was, on their website about a, a month after they've decided on, on it, an individual case. But as far as we're aware, they haven't actually done that in Jeremy's case. And obviously we're a number of months down the line now. So it appears that um, for whatever reason, that they don't wish this to be made public. If there were anything we can do to make that public. Yes, Emma, we've uh, sought authorization from Jeremy and he's uh, happy that anybody can see this ruling. And so therefore it is now to go in conjunction with this podcast. It's now available on the website for all to see. Fabulous. So that's www.jeremy-bamba.co.uk. That's right. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Yvonne and Philip. That was really informative. And I will see you again soon. You will. Take care, Emma. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Bye. Bye. If you want to lend your support to Jeremy Bamba, you can write to him in the UK using the number A5352AC, HM Wakefield, 5 Love Lane, Wakefield, WF29AG. Or see our website for details at www.jeremy-bamba.co.uk.